we've learned anything from these past couple of years, my fellow Americans, is that personal medical freedom and liberty are in crisis. America Out Loud Pulse brings together the top experts in healthcare-related fields to keep you a beat ahead. This is Dr. Marilyn Singleton, and welcome to America Out Loud Pulse. There is a movie from 1981 called My Dinner with Andre. It was sort of a conversation between two old friends. And this is how I feel about our conversation tonight with my very special guest, Dr. Jane Orient. You know, I used to enjoy watching how medicine has changed over the years. When I was an intern, we had to drill holes in the skull to diagnose a subdural hematoma. Now a quick CAT scan without surgery gives you a world of information. Ultrasound to manage a pregnancy was a brand new thing and it was a really big deal. Now it's routine. Surgery with the laparoscope, the so-called belly button surgery, was in its infancy. Now you're hard pressed to see a gallbladder removal done without a full done with a full abdominal incision. I remember the days when humanity and medicine prevailed. You could get around the utilization reviewer's green pen, letting you know it was his opinion that the patient needed to be discharged from the hospital. We were empathetic and the bean counters didn't control us. I fondly remember letting an elderly patient stay a few extra days through Christmas because his only friend was also in the hospital. The social changes in medicine are a different story. It was wonderful when schools, including higher education, accepted students of all races and genders. We saw all sorts of patients, prison ward, detox ward, didn't matter. We treated them to the best of our ability. Now, I worry about what happened to people merely treating one another like fellow human beings. What caused the rich and powerful to decide that we should be categorized in perpetuity by race or gender instead of our individual characteristics? What caused medicine to ignore science and vociferously agree that men can be women? What caused medicine to fall in line with grammatically incorrect and sometimes bizarre pronouns? Take, for example, Dr. Jane Orient's bio at Healthline.com. It reads, Dr. Jane Orient, MD, is an internal medicine specialist in Tucson, Arizona. They specialize in internal medicine has and has 47 years of experience. I seriously doubt that wording was approved by Dr. Orient. Not only is she a she, they is not grammatically correct. I am so pleased to have Dr. Orient as my guest tonight. She's the executive director of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons and most of you already know, but as we say at AAPS, we are a voice for patients and physicians, independent patients and physicians since 1943. 
Dr. Orian has been in solo practice and internal medicine since 1981 and is a clinical lecturer in medicine at the University of Arizona College of Medicine. She majored in chemistry and mathematics, way too ahead for me, and got her MD at Columbia University. Her op-eds on health policy have been published in hundreds of local and national newspapers, magazines, and followed on major blogs covered by the Wall Street Journal and New York Times. Not only that, and I don't know where she finds the time, she's written several novels and nonfiction books, including Sapira's Art and Science of Bedside Diagnosis, that's in its fourth printing. Welcome to the show, Dr. Orient. It's so always such a great pleasure to visit with you, Dr. Singleton. And I certainly couldn't agree with you more about the wonderful advances in medicine. I only observed one pneumoencephalogram in my career where you injected air into the, into the uh, cerebrospinal fluid and turned the patient upside down to try to see inside the skull. It was terribly painful, the headache that the patient had. You didn't get that much information out of it. The technical advances are absolutely wonderful, but the, but the inhumanity with which patients are now being treated is just so appalling. I mean, oftentimes it's just really cruel and brutal the way patients and their families are being treated in the hospital. Well, I tell you, I think what, kicked me off on this whole inhumanity in medicine was this was probably now three years ago, time flies, when there was a story, and it's a true story, you'd think it was made up that a robot with a TV screen of a doctor came in a patient's room and let him know he had a terminal illness. And I thought, who would have thought that was a good idea? Well, I have seen some pretty awful things that doctors have done too. Like I heard one of them shout down the hall at a family, he expired when the family uh, member came in to see a patient who had just died. I mean, I mean how awful. That was a long time ago. But, but now the inhumanity is so great that even with chat GPT, that may interact with patients these days, patients will say not only that do they get a better answer, but they felt more empathy coming from the, the artificial intelligence program than coming from an actual physician. I read that study. It was just recently done. And I, I was really, really surprised. And it made you wonder what have they done to doctors in medical school? I, I mean, supposedly they're picking people in medical school, not off of the MCATs. That's the uh, thing like SATs you take to get in or on your grade point average. But they're looking for people who have some sense of um, social commitment and and but it seems like it's going down the opposite road, and I just don't understand it. Well, I guess the people they are choosing are supposed to have a very woke attitude and be very concerned about disparities and exclusion and equity. And when I've asked questions at the Medical Society, if we ever have a chance to talk to anybody there, how, how 
how are we supposed to do something different than treat every individual to the very best of our ability? I mean, what are we supposed to do if the patient doesn't fit into the right equity box? Are we supposed to treat that patient differently? Well, that's what I find so bizarre, that there's this assumption that we haven't been practicing medicine properly in the first place. I, you know, like you described that rude doctor yelling down the hall, those people were considered anomalies and, and you'd either go up to him if you knew him and say, what is wrong with you? Or be they'd be vilified by their peers, something, but most doctors treat patients like they're a person, like they're an individual person. I, I, I found it very interesting. There was an article about testing for kidney disease at home. And it's a great idea. The thing that bothered me about the article, it was framed in terms of equity in healthcare. It's just a good idea. Why can't it just be a good idea to let patients do some tests at home and then send the results to their doctor and have a conversation, whatever. But it's like everything is framed like, I. how do we put it? Like we're doing something wrong rather than having a, a new test or a new way of testing be, oh, what a great innovation. This will help everybody in medicine. It's like, no, it has to be something that makes medicine equitable or else it's no good. That is so true. I remember one of my most important professors in physical diagnosis class was the one instead of looking at all the checkboxes for their review assistants and so on, told us, you know, the first thing is to find out what the illness means to the patient. Get to know the patient. I mean, this is a, the patient's humanity is the most important thing. But now we've got a computer set up. Doctors may not even look at the patient any longer. And, and their assessments are based solely on what they do or what is recorded there and whether they follow the directions from the drop-down menu. It has just become a very cold and impersonal thing. And it's not surprising that so many young physicians are burned out because this is this is harmful and demoralizing to them as well as to their patients. Well, and it seems like it would lead people to stop thinking, really. I, I have a friend who was it well until she passed away was a hospice nurse and they started using a computer checklist whenever they'd go visit a patient at their home and she said some of the questions on there were so stupid because these patients were in hospice but she couldn't move on to the next page until she answered every question on the first page like you know where do you live uh, what's wrong with you? Uh, you know, which is obviously the same. They're ready to die in a few weeks. But she said it took up time that she could have been spending with the patient, but she had to fill out the form to show that she went to see the patient. And I think this is happening to the young doctors on some of these records where you can't go to the next page unless you completely fill out the first page, no matter how relevant it is to the moment that you're with that patient. 
And of course, this just promotes fraud because so many people are doing a cut and paste to fill in the forms and really can't rely on what's in this 100 pages of printouts. My mother had generated 100 pages of hospital chart, most of it irrelevant, confusing, um, incorrect, or just duplicates for every single day in the hospital. Oh, it's, it's ridiculous. And that, of course, is how mistakes are made. When a drug gets cut and pasted, uh, and then it gets, it, the patient gets it, even though that drug should have been stopped or was stopped, it's, uh, I don't know. I can see how typing up records, of course, it's a good idea. And before computers, some people even type their records because their handwriting was so bad. Um, or dictated them and had them typed up by the folks in the dictation pool. You want to be able to read the records, but you don't want checklist medicine. You want to, you, you know, the patient tells you something and you say, well, let's explore that. How are you doing? You know, uh, and does that even happen anymore? I don't know. I'm fortunate. I have a doctor who doesn't do all that. And she talks to me like a normal human being. And I just feel so lucky. Well, certainly that's true. But you can't, even if it's legible and typewritten, you can't read it if it if it's it's just a chaotic mess of irrelevancies. We well, used to have physicians who could write like a three or four line note in the VA chart beautiful penmanship, but also it was just a very concise, intelligent summary of the important things that you needed to know. Well, and then you wonder, does anybody really read all that stuff? And of course not. People are very busy, so they're not going to read it. And that's how they're going to miss the important point. Oh, so we've beaten that up. And I think a million doctors know how awful these electronic health records are, but it doesn't seem like too many are doing anything about it. Some doctors use their own style and it works for them. But in general, knowing that we have this national office that collects these records, um, that's even scarier than the checkbox medicine is if the government is involved in the checkbox medicine. Well, they're going to be evaluating the doctor for whether he complies with the billing requirements, but they're also going to be evaluating the patients as to whether it's worth keeping them alive. Well, it's coming to that. Well, and I'm, I definitely think we're coming to it. You know, somebody, um, and I can't remember the congressperson's name, introduced a bill to, I think it's H.R. 435, to prevent the government from using the so-called qualies, Q-A-L-I, the quality of life years that certain treatments give. That's what they do in Great Britain with their National Health Service. And apparently, needless to say, there's a lot of blowback that they uh, they say, oh, well, this is really important. We need to know whether this treatment is going to be really good, blah, 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 blah. But it's just another checkbox that doesn't take the patient and their life and their family and 
into consideration. And this is very scary that there's a lot of people that are objecting to that idea that we in America should not use qualities to decide how we're going to treat our patients. No, and I think there are a lot of people who believe that if the doctor has your old records, he'll know everything. And in an emergency, he really needs to have those old records. But in my experience, what happened in the, you know, the five minutes before the patient came in is more important than anything that's in the record. And many doctors have found that they can find out more by just asking the patient or family what's going on than they can by trying to delve through this impossible electronic record. Well, that sure is the truth, but excuse me, it kind of fits into what's happening now anyway, people not talking to each other and texting instead of talking. When we get back, we're going to get into some more just about medicine or society in general, what some of these big issues that are happening, uh, lack of parental rights, illegal immigration, all these things that um, really impact our health and our general sense of where we are in society. So after the break, we'll get into all of that. Right now, I would like to talk about CoFixRx. This has been, for me, a lifesaver during COVID and really just during the winter and now the summer colds. I see people walking down the street, sniffling. Sometimes it's allergies. Sometimes it's just a good old fashioned cold. And Cofix RX is a nasal spray. And the idea is really simple. It's got iodine, which is an antiviral powerhouse. It also has xylitol that works against viruses. And when you use a nasal spray like this, you have to remember about 95% of these respiratory infections we get enter where? Through the nose. And so this is, think of it, it's kind of like your airbag. It's a line of defense. Nothing is 100%, but this can reduce your odds of getting sick from lots of these germs. One of the things I love about it, it was invented by a USA doctor. It's made in the USA. You can get it almost everywhere now, health food stores, medical offices, and pharmacies. And you can get it on our website as well. There's a little button there. You can just click it, CofixRx. You can read more about it and buy some if you like. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-term effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. Fortunately, Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the wellness company designed their spike support formula with the miracle enzyme natokinase, scientifically studied to dissolve spike protein so you can feel your very best. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. 
Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity, unlike other supplements that don't work. Immune Super Boost is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity, like vitamin C, D3, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code out loud. Okay. Before we left, we were just talking about the electronic medical records, that they're just one thing that go into this general sense of loss of humanity, loss of individuality. What do you think, in general, is going on just in the government, really in the world, now that we're so connected up, that's trying to make us less human? I think it's a problem that goes beyond the medical record. I think that it's a philosophical problem, a religious problem, um, just a problem of what do we really believe a human being is? Is is his person just a cog in the wheel? Is a person who just fits into some little little box society wants to put him in? Or is a person really a special creation, an individual of infinite worth who, who deserves our respect and our love? Are we trying to do away with love? And compassion and just replace it with with somebody's calculated view of what's fair or equitable well it makes you wonder are we because where there was an era certainly in the 60s even though there was a lot of strife a lot of protests but it's had a goal of ultimately trying to unify us I remember the button when I was in college, make love, not war. We, you know, it's one of these things that we don't get that sense that the end goal of all the noise is love. It seems more like it's division. Why Why do they want us so divided, Dr. Orient? I think it's to enable central control of all of us, because if you have groups of people who love each other and support each other and are loyal to each other and talk to each other, uh, and they, they tend to think about things and not just do what they're told from on high, if everybody's an atomized individual who has no connections with family, with a church, uh, with a social group, uh, then that person is very easy to control. There's no support group, nothing to back him up if he if some has a different idea or doesn't fit in or just needs something special. Well, that's very interesting. And and what really made me think about this even more, I kind of think about it a lot. Um just I, you know, after you live long enough and see it go from the mood of the 60s to the mood now, both uh, loud voices, but uh, it just doesn't seem to be going the same place, is I saw a little thing on TV about Hurricane Katrina, 
and people stranded. I mean, it was horrible. And but holding signs, please help us. And I just got this sense of the government had become the new God, the new place to call on rather than your friends or other other local sources, like you mentioned, church. And it was a disaster, but it's helping each other that gets us out of these scrapes. Well, I think even with Katrina and other disasters like that, if you're going to get help when you need it, that does does what you need, you're going to get it from another human being. The FEMA truck may come up with some money eventually, but if there's no one there who cares enough about you as another human being, and so many people took huge risks and gave of their time and of themselves to help people, then they were the ones who made a difference to people. The government uh, just would be stranded there if, if it just didn't fit into their agenda. Well, that certainly is the truth. And uh, that kind of you get into this whole idea of these qualities. It's because if it's up to the government to say, well, we're going to go get this person first and that person second, and maybe we won't get this person at all. They're in a wheelchair. What, you know, they're of no use to us. And it sounds like, oh, how far fetched can that be? But it's not far-fetched. I think they're already doing it. When my mother went in the hospital with pneumonia, she hadn't even gotten a single antibiotic before the hospice people were there saying, how do you want her final days? Can we put her on hospice? I said, we don't even know if she's going to respond to the antibiotic. I said, please leave. How long did she live after that, doing wonderful things, going to my son's graduate school graduation, taking car rides up and down the California coast? Two years after they were going to write her off, and just because she was 89. So this, it becomes a mentality of who is allowed to live and who isn't not decided by the person in their family, but decided by government entities or their puppets. Well, and I've seen a lot of cases of patients discharged from the hospital with no concern about how they're going to do at home. Like a person who has, who has become paralyzed or mostly paralyzed, just being kicked out without having modifications made in her home, without having arranged for anybody who can help her maybe only a child who, who is not really able to lift her to help her do the things that need to be done. I mean, don't we have social workers anymore? Don't we have people who can keep the person in the hospital a couple days longer until these very essential things can be made? You know that at least one patient who killed herself because simply she could have done all right if she had just a little bit of help at home. The speaking of having help or resources, this, again, it, it makes me wonder, the government seems to talk a good game. Oh, several years ago in Walnut Creek, there was a family where the daughter was in her 40s and she was mentally disabled. The wife had cancer, the husband got cancer, and they didn't know what to do. So the husband 
killed them and committed suicide. It it sounds so shocking, but it's like what you just described. They didn't know what to do. And this was about the same time that one of the missing girls up from the Lake Tahoe area had finally been found after 12 years or some such. And she was in the backyard in a tent in a home that the sheriff's office had visited several times. So we think we can't count on the government. And it, in that case, it was the neighbors who were suspicious. And it's too bad that we've lost that sense where you've got to go out and help your neighbor and help yourself because you can't wait for the government entities to do it. Well, the government has never really been able to do that. That not only charity begins at home, but but it is absolutely essential and indispensable. There is no substitute for it. Well, I remember my father used to always say growing up, now remember when the chips are down, you only have yourself to count on. And it's such a a contrast in philosophy from what they're telling people now that, oh, someone else will take care of you. I mean, look at this for giving student loans I mean, admittedly, college is expensive, and part of it is because of student loans. If they didn't, weren't able to borrow all this money, then the universities wouldn't have upped the tuition exponentially. I mean, I'm embarrassed to say when I went to Stanford, it was $3,000 a year. And, you know, I look at it. Now, yes, inflation, that was a long time ago, but it's way more than inflation what the tuition is now. And that's because people can get loans to pay it. And why should we forgive those loans? And I think there's students who go to school, they drop out after a year, they're stuck with these loans, or they major in women's studies or something, and then they're working at Starbucks. Why should I pay for that? Why should people who were going to trade school and now work as an electrician pay for the kids who had a couple years of living it up in college? Yeah, it, it talk about robbing the poor to help the rich. And uh, I think Congress did the right thing. And getting rid of that. And President Biden just went ahead and said, no, we're still going to forgive student loans. Boy, that that just really makes me sick. It's like, if you want to go to college, you plan for it. And, you know, they say some of the most successful people are the ones that went to community college first for a couple of years. They know what they want to do. They're serious students. Then they get their four-year degree. They're not going to college just to fool around. But unfortunately, we don't make that division if they're saying they're going to forgive student loans. It's like, well, the fraternity boys and the sorority girls are going to get theirs forgiven just like the hard workers. It's just go by the university. There are all of these high-rise apartment buildings, really luxurious apartments, not a little room that we had in the dormitory when we were in medical school. And 
all of this is, is going to be paid for. Um, and maybe not by the person who benefited from it. Well, and, and that's the bad part because the the kind of workaday salt of the earth types, the ones that sit there and pay their taxes, they're the ones paying for somebody to whoop it up and have a good time. Now, admittedly, there's people, obviously many people emerge from college and do a lot for society and have learned something valuable to do with their life as well as something that's pleasurable to them. But uh, that's not true in every case. If the I smartest people and most productive people are college dropouts, like for mm-hmm. example. And you know, there's things well, like us, like being a doctor. You've got to go to school. You've got to learn the trade. But in a sense, it is a trade, and it's a useful skill. And we went to school to learn it. And yeah, we like to philosophize like we're doing today and and talk about heady things and give our opinions. But when the chips are down, we learn to trade and we like to do it. And I think that back in the days when doctors learned through apprenticeship, maybe they were just as good for their time as people are now. Well, I'm imagining they probably were. They got to see everything. I remember years ago, I was stunned when I read that some medical schools had stopped using cadavers for anatomy, and they did it with the computer. And I thought, how do you get the same feel? And and again, a same emotional feel. There was something emotional about dissecting someone who had been a living human being who had donated their body to science. And uh, it maybe that's your first connection to a patient. And now many schools do it by computer. Well, it definitely is not the same. How can you look at a slide for yourself really when you've never actually had to you know, get the slide and find the field that you wanna look at and learn something about preparing yourself, but everything is perfect it's all on a PowerPoint presentation. It all is much easier, but did you really learn about what's what's around the stuff that, you, that they pick out for you? Well, we may we may never know. I just feel lucky that I know people who can take care of me. The people I feel badly for are everyday people who don't necessarily have some sort of advocate within the healthcare system. And if they don't go to a solo or small group practitioner who actually knows about them and knows about their family, they may just get lost in the shuffle when they need their medical care the most. The hardest question I have to answer and one that's increasingly common is, and you suggest a good doctor for me to go to. Hmm. People I relied on are dead or retired. And it's very, very hard to answer that question. Well, it's really sad because, and more and more, the young folks aren't even getting exposed to that type of practice, that old-fashioned 
practice that's kind of becoming a new practice, but they don't even get exposed to it or don't get the chance to meet the doctors. I felt lucky. In my school, we had a course senior year called Ambulatory and Community Medicine. And sometimes we worked in the clinic, but we had a home care patient and you'd actually do house calls on this patient. We visited doctor's offices and saw what the doctor of whatever specialty it was you were thinking about. What did they really do all day? All these things. I don't know that everybody does that anymore. Maybe oh, some schools do. They may think the kids don't know that it's possible. But the, these practitioners may be portrayed as unethical, that they're just greedy, fat cats out there. When in fact, personalized care from a doctor like this could be extremely economical and certainly cost you much less than what you're paying for your HMO, so-called insurance. Uh, so-called insurance is right. When we get back from the break, we're going to talk about a few more topical issues and things that I know gripe me, just ugh, they make my blood boil and gripe Dr. Orion as well. And we'll get into those after the break in our last segment. For now, I would like to thank everybody for listening to America Out Loud Pulse. As you know, we are always a beat ahead. You can hear Pulse every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern with an encore at 10 p.m. and on iHeartRadio at 8 a.m. the next morning. You can listen on our media player from any web browser anywhere in the world. The best part is all shows go direct to podcast in 24 hours, and the episodes are on lots of podcast networks, Apple, Spotify, Pandora, TuneIn, Stitcher, iHeart. Make it easy. Bookmark americaoutloud.com forward slash pulse. One of the features of Pulse, and it's something we started when this show started, well, now gee, a couple months over a year ago, is that it's a different doctor every night of the week. Mondays with me, Marilyn Singleton. Tuesdays with concerned doctors, Dr. Jordan Vaughn and Dr. Stuart Tankersley. Wednesdays with Dr. Peter McCulloch. Thursday with Dr. Peter Bregan and Ginger Ross Bregan. And Fridays with Dr. Harvey Reich. And we've got Nurses Out Loud, too. They're on Monday through Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern with an encore at 10 p.m. So plenty to listen to, lots of medicine and politics out there for you. It was Henry Wadsworth Longfellow that said, Lives of great men all remind us we can make our lives sublime and departing, leave behind us footprints on the sands of time. America Out Loud Talk Radio, the liberty and justice for all. If you're like me, you'd like life to return to some kind of normal. You're burned out on all the fear-mongering, but deep down you try and minimize viral exposure and your risk of getting sick. You've heard it talked about time and again by respected medical professionals. Use a pulvinone iodine nasal solution. 
I don't need to tell you just how powerful a nasal cleansing formula with xylitol, povidone iodine, and vitamin D3 for immune support could be. In fact, my attorney told me not to tell you. Google it and find out for yourself. Now, get yourself a bottle of American-made Cofix RX nasal solution. Let's get out and live again. CofixRx.com. That's C-O-F-I-X-R-X.com. Use coupon code out loud and get 20% off. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company designed the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Go to OutloudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. Before we left, we, there's so many issues out there that we all care about, and they do relate to healthcare. And I don't know, we prefer to call it medical care. When you go to a doctor, healthcare is that general sense of how you take care of yourself. One of the things, and me living in a border state, that I worry about is the influx of illegal immigrants who now aren't checked for COVID. And it turned out they aren't even checked for a lot of other communicable diseases. What do you know about that, Dr. Orient? I think that this is a very serious problem. We had an article in our journal about it decade, well, a long time ago. And the fact is that these people are not checked for anything. The, the most serious thing, I think, is multiple drug-resistant tuberculosis because this can be latent for a long period of time. You can catch it on the bus. It can be extremely difficult or impossible to treat. And we're bringing in large masses of people under very uh, traveling under very unhygienic conditions, sending them all over the country without knowing who they are or where they're going and I think already we're seeing increase in tuberculosis that we had largely managed to conquer here. And then, of course, there are all of these uh, parasitic diseases that American doctors are not familiar with at all. And, of course, they spread like wildfire under unsanitary conditions, which we're seeing not just in these migrant camps, but in downtown San Francisco or many other places. And, you know, the, the, the contamination even in our, in our water may become much worse than usual because we are not even treating sewage the way it needs to be treated. Well, certainly now that people are, excuse the medical expression, pooping in the street, uh, I really don't think our storm drains were meant to absorb human stool that that's why we have toilets, but this seems to now be acceptable, that homelessness is a problem. We're adding more to the homeless problem by bringing in people with nowhere to go, so there's going to be more people on the street. And this is one of those things where if you say something about it, you lack compassion. Well, I have lots of compassion for those folks but the question is, 
what do you do about it? Allowing people to live in squalor on the streets and pretend like it's not there is not compassionate. It's certainly not compassion for the businesses that are driven away, for the school children who are placed at risk of stepping on contaminated needles on their way to school or of being actually assaulted. It's not compassionate in any way to allow people to live under such conditions. Well, it's pretty sickening. And I understand that um, now there's drug paraphernalia that's in vending machines and Narcan, and uh, it's being scooped up overnight. That is, That certainly isn't the answer. Every time I see one of these um, little barns, um, what like Tough Shed makes, that they're advertising for people because in California, you can have an accessory dwelling unit, you know, really small unit that you can put in your backyard. That why doesn't the government get something like that if they're so intent on doing something rather than paying, as they do in Los Angeles, $638,000 per apartment for a homeless person? Why don't they have a, an area where they can have multiple tiny houses? And that's a real fad. There's even a TV show about tiny houses. And have homeless people get a sense of self, and the ones who aren't mentally ill can try to get back on their feet rather than just feeding the problem. Well, certainly there are many solutions out there that are absolutely not being implemented by government that we would rather rather see these encampments we see them destroy our city some people even think well that will drive property values down really low and then the billionaires will buy it up for a song and then we'll kick these people out Ugh. i mean i don't know what the motive for this is but you need to realize that you let it start small and it grows and grows and grows. And then what do you do about it? And you have to wonder, is there some reason why people are not addressing it when it's a manageable problem? Well, I've certainly thought about that myself. We're, we're almost full of these huge questions because it's why, 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 when it was a small problem and something could have been done nothing was done. And now, what ho, it's a crisis. And now the mayor of New York is thinking of asking people to house a legal immigrant in their home, somebody they know nothing about. And next, that they're going to ask that to house a homeless person. And it's, it's, it's stunning to me that people have let it go this long, but part of it is it, it's, it's the same thing that happens when people are called a racist because they want their doctor to have good grades. They don't care what color he is. I just want somebody who knows what they're doing. They call you a racist. They call you an uncompassionate boob if you don't believe the government's going to solve homelessness or if you don't, if you ask somebody to take a homeless person in their home, well, of course they don't want to do that. How much are they paying for hotel rooms? I think half of the hotel rooms in New York are filled with illegal migrants. 
and they're destroying the hotels and they're destroying the tourist industry and somebody's going to pay for this but uh it's it's just making the problem worse and worse and worse well it sure is well here's another problem okay and i alluded to this with they pronoun that they call you which i just found so amusing when i read it i thought of all people to call a they i did not write that marilyn <laughs> I just cracked up when I saw that. Um, I'm sure you didn't. I didn't what, what is happening with all this transgender stuff and p- parental rights seem like they're a thing of the past and the teachers union thinking they own the children and wanting to put health clinics in all the schools so the government can now be in charge of your children's health and not tell the parents. What is going on? Well, certainly this strategy has been proposed by Marxists to undermine the family, to to destroy the normal human bonds that have kept us together for millennia, and to make us susceptible to a totalitarian government, because people are not going to tolerate chaos indefinitely. And the next step is for some strong man to come in and bring order at the expense of destroying liberty. Well, that seems to be the plan, and they seem to be doing a good job of it. I just think back to when my son was in school and and going through all the phases of childhood where you're easily impressionable and peer group pressure, all these things without parents. Who knows what could happen to a child? And this is really sad that some parents are stepping back and really relinquishing their duty to raise their own child and saying, well, it's it's okay what's happening in the school. Oh, they're the experts. And the parents are, are, if not evil, they are incompetent and they can't be trusted to take care of these children. But when the children end up with a serious problem, Who's going to be there for them? The school counselor who told the boy that he can become a girl is not going to be there. It's his parents who will be there for him if anyone is to help him deal with his wrecked life. Well, and this is what's so sad is the transgender fad. It reminds me of the fad when girls were getting pregnant just so they would have a baby that would love them. And that was going around for a while. This is so totally irreversible. And this is what just, it makes me cringe to think that a parent would allow their child to be castrated uh, and spayed like an animal and never be able to have a normal sex life normal children have children it's it it's it's stunning to me and what's even worse worse than the teachers keeping the parents out of it is the doctors who've bought into it for a good price they have maybe they haven't bought into it 
they have been bought and they can make millions of dollars having these people who are going to be their patients for life. Because once they go down this path, they are not going to be able to get along in society without having someone to prescribe their hormones and deal with the side effects of the hormones and deal with their totally fractured social life. So, I mean, it's a lucrative business. Well, it that makes me embarrassed to be a doctor thinking about doing something for the money. Obviously, we have to make money for our services. I mean, wouldn't you love to be able to be independently wealthy and take care of patients for free? But even doing that isn't a good thing that the pay, it has to be a two-way street. So, and there's even studies that show that if patients don't pay for something, they don't follow the orders as well, and they don't take the medicines. So it's, all got to be a two-way street. And it it just makes me cringe that there's doctors out there who would mutilate people just for the almighty dollar. But some of them seem to feel very self-righteous about it. They feel that they are the enlightened ones and any parents who stand in their way are harmful to their children and we need to enable the children to escape to another state where these things are legal and can be done without their patients knowledge, much less their consent. Well, this is what scares me. And you can argue, and and it's kind of one of the uh, arguments of not notifying a parent if a child's getting an abortion, that the, the argument is that if they had a good relationship, then the child would confide that in the parent. But I don't think that's always a good argument. You can have a good relationship with your parents, but you still don't tell them everything. And you can still be very afraid and not know how they'll respond. And you have someone come up to you and say, well, you can tell me, I'll take care of the whole thing and your parents need never know. And that way you don't have to disappoint your parents. I can just see that conversation. And it doesn't mean the child had a bad relationship. I just think that's a phony argument. It certainly is. And I guess mom might find out about it when their their daughter is hemorrhaging in the emergency room at the hospital and having a hysterectomy to save her life. Exactly. Well, all this talk... What do you think? Do you think it's an apt description to say America is becoming like the fall of Rome, that we're on the eve of destruction? Or what's the hopeful note if there is one? That we're on the eve of destruction, wasn't that a very popular song back when we were? Back in the 60s. I... I don't want the listeners to never tune in again, but because I could sing it, but I won't. <laughs> well, I'm but. certainly going to try to sing it, but I think we really are. And I think the only hope is that people are beginning to wake up and people who, who care, really care about it because they're coming for our children. And I think that that's the only place that's starting to make a difference when parents are standing up to the school boards, standing up to the doctors. State legislatures are finally beginning to get involved in this. 
and maybe some of our colleagues can be awakened too. I think the most disgraceful thing about this is that doctors are going along with lying to children and lying to their parents and calling the people anti-science who are making this, stating the simple scientific fact that there are two sexes and you cannot convert one into the other. Certainly not by some plastic surgery. Not um, by any means. Well, who knows, Dr. Orient, the way they're doing all this gene research, somebody is probably in some back room working on how to change somebody at the genetic level. Who knows? It's so it, very Frankensteinian. Yes. Well, I'm sure people would love to read more about you, read more about AAPS. Can you give the website of AAPS and the website for how people can read some of your books? The website is uh, aapsonline.org. And I have a website, drjaneorient.com. But things that I write for the journal or for the newsletter, they're all on apsonline.org. And everyone is free to read them and to, to sign up to receive our alerts. Okay. And that's free. No, you don't that's have free. to pay. That's right. And the, the best thing about email is that you can get an alert, you can read it, take it or leave it, you can forward it to somebody, but I guarantee you, reading these alerts, you'll learn a lot, uh, not only medically, what's going on in the legal world of medicine, there's so much more. And you know about AAPS, I know a lot of you have heard our shows with Andy Schlafly, our general counsel, and he's kept us up Dated on a lot of the legal aspects of trying to keep individual freedoms in medicine. Thank you, Dr. Orient, for coming on the show. And I hope we'll do it again. Let's do. Okay. And thank everyone for listening. And you know we have the feature of questions and answers. You can just send the questions in by email to americaoutloud.com forward slash pulse. It's right there on the page of the show. And we can ask the guest or ask the host a question and we'll get back to you. First names are fine on the email and we don't track you. And one of the new features we've got now is americaoutloud.shop. And you can shop for a lot of the products that uh, Dr. McCulloch uses, Healthy Cell, Cofix RX, The Wellness Company, and we've got a bookstore with tons of books. And if you use the discount code out loud, you'll get a big discount for anything you buy in the store. So we're really pleased with that new addition. I just want to say again, thank you for listening. And whether you agree or have other opinions, please share the show. And until next week, say it loud. I'm free and I'm proud.